This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we conclude with the final selection from Landowska on Music, written by Wanda Landowska, collected, edited, and translated by Denise Ristu, assisted by Robert Hawkins, and published in 1964 by Stein and Day Publishers. Part 3, Chapter 5 The Mysteries of Interpretation Criticism Most of the criticism I receive is complimentary. Yet those who express their admiration for my playing do not necessarily understand what I am doing. After a town hall recital, one of the leading critics wrote, In the Bach partita in C minor, the opening sinfonia, the rondo, and the caprice were presented with the artist's expected mastery, but peculiar liberties were taken with the allemande and the sarabande of this work, for which Madame Landowska probably has found justification, but left unexplained in her program notes. The rhythmic alteration in the subject of the allemande was one of these new ideas introduced. In the same program, I also dotted the allemandes of Rameau and Couperin, as well as their sarabands, but the critic did not notice it, because he did not know these pieces. On what do critics base their criticisms? What are their points of comparisons? They judge from what they hear in concert halls, in public competitions, or in the studios where instrumentalists are rehearsing their pieces exactly as they have been taught by their teachers. Criticism is on a level with the virtuoso's productions. This is why critics hear only the degree of technique and the obvious features of a piece those they can perceive. Fillings out, like those I introduce in the Sinfonia of the C minor partita, subtleties of ornamentation or register, etc., escape them. Not a word about them. Read any criticism about me and substitute the name of another performer. It will fit just as well. Why? Because the critic is unable to notice what characterizes my playing. This is a professional distortion. The liberties I take. Some people like to describe me as a humble and faithful servant of the old masters. Well, they do not look closely. I am neither humble nor faithful, although I love the old masters in my own way. Yet the liberties I take, are they really liberties? Critics attack me because I do not play the dotted note in the theme of the first fugue of the well-tempered clavier, because I do not always observe a tie where it is marked, but mostly because I add ornaments and rhythmical alterations, and because my registrations could not always have been done on the harpsichords of the time. But I take many other liberties that remain unnoticed by my critics, although they are numerous and flagrant. It is easy to single out the places where a dot, a tie, or an ornament are not played according to the so-called Urtext edition. This is elementary. 
but where are the ears that can detect the hidden sustained pedal note which resounds in the prelude in F major, for instance, or in that in G minor, bars three and six? And what about my playing of The Bells by William Byrd on my Playel harpsichord? Do not expect a scrupulous reading. Nothing in this world could prevent my interpreting the text as I see it, understand it, and feel it. No doubt I would be astounded were I to hear this piece played by an artist of the time of Shakespeare on an instrument of the period, but, believe me, I am not taking advantage of the fact that it can never happen. It is true that the virginal of William Byrd had few registers, but let us not forget that it was generally heard in concert with fifes, trumpets, lutes, etc., that made the music extraordinarily colorful. There is a great discrepancy between the liberties that interpreters were required to take in the 17th and 18th centuries and the modern transcriptions of pianists who are ignorant of what these liberties were supposed to be. If on one hand exaggeration and roarings and bad taste are repulsive, on the other false sobriety is just as exasperating. I admit a liking for the integral, naked text surging from silence and surrounded by solitude, devoid of weighty interpretative indications such as allegro giocoso, adagio appassionato, and the like. But the fear of adding a note which cries out to be inserted, or of interpreting an ornament when its theoretical realization would be insufficient, is a misconception of the spirit of the music of the past. This sobriety has for its aim the objective presentation of the text without any personal involvement. But is not this tone of indigent indifference another roundabout way of being subjective, since it is deliberate and merely a simulation of indifference? Apply this objectivity to Mozart, he who was a complete man, passionate or cold, tender or teasing, great in his simplicity. What would become of his music? As for Bach, Reducing to straightforwardness his involved, ornate, and baroque lines would be like transforming a Gothic cathedral into a skyscraper. Because of the theory of sobriety launched by some ill-bred artist, the average person is suspicious when a phrase of Bach is played freely. For this reason, style is rectitude. He considers any deviation from the printed text an act of dishonesty. Rare are the interpreters who know how to take liberties, but rarer are the listeners who know that certain liberties were laws and customs at one time. Usually the ignorance of these people makes them aggressive. Stiff-necked people are afraid to experience a thrill of pleasure or to smile amused while listening to the music termed ancient. Sometimes to poke fun at them, I plan to give them their fill of grave and boring music so that they may experience the dignity of beauty. But my love for music prevails over my mood for mystification, which I hardly possess, and I prefer to give them a kick rather than to be prankish. 
under the hands of some pianists, flashing pieces, Dionysian joy or unquestionable dynamism are reduced to murmurs, caresses, light sweetness or charming smiles. It often happens with Scarlatti sonatas, and they become coquettish trifles. Most violinists indulge in the exaggerated use of portamento, and because of this they deprive it of its real value. This manner of insinuating oneself in the good graces of an audience with Swedish obsequiousness, cold-blooded petting, is repulsive to me. It is like a breach of trust. Too often the perpetual pianissimo and a pink-and-blue murmur delight the average listeners guided by leading critics. We are told of Mozart's purity and of the simplicity of a Haydn or of a Couperin, but simplicity does not mean poverty, indigence, and ignorance. When we say the purity of Mozart we are thinking of the impeccable tracing of his engraving tool, of his writing clear as crystal, but we are not then thinking of what his music expresses. Even when laden with amorous voluptuousness, Mozart's music remains pure. Simplicity can be that of a brute who only sees and plays what is written, but there is also that of the visionary who discovers dreams, meditates, throws himself into foolish adventures, but comes back bloody, battered, with his heart wounded, though happy and richer. Then quietness pervades him gradually, everything becomes clearer, waste falls away, simplicity appears little by little. That simplicity has resonances. Through it one hears all that has been felt and experienced. Is it necessary to say everything? Is it not sufficient to be conscious and to make it felt through a light and transparent web, one that does not weigh, but only scintillates and vibrates? The tragedy in the interpretation of music of the past lies in the fact that it is confined to concert halls, congresses of musicology, or conservatory classes. Let us bring it out of these respectable and dull places. Let us air it. Let us shake prejudices and let us revive the dead letters of old treatises. Music needs air, sunlight, and liberty to be alive. It is then only that it will impart to us surprising secrets. Being an Interpreter Interpretation what a marvelous and redoubtable adventure into the unknown. Yes, the unknown. No matter how well we know the author or have memorized a piece, do we know how close to truth our rendition is? What is truth in interpretation? Is it authenticity, literalism, or should an interpretation be personal? How greatly the expression personal interpretation has been abused. It is often employed when the more appropriate term, personal playing, is intended. Every one of us has a more or less individual way of playing. He who leans on the keyboard with all the weight of his body obviously obtains a different sonority from him who skims lightly over the keys. There are those who draw strength from the shoulder, 
the arm, or the forearm, while others seek it from the wrist or from independence of the fingers. Some performers cultivate a jeu perle, pearled articulation. Others watch only for the tour de force. A certain pianist, very nervous by nature, will have what is called a genial style of playing, meaning erratic and studded with false notes. There is little merit in having a personal manner of playing. As for personal interpretation, this is something extremely rare. Give an unknown work to a good musician. Perhaps he will play it after his own feeling, but if it is a work of Beethoven or Chopin, you may be sure that he will play it in the manner he learned from his master. The more skilled he is in his profession, the more he will be under the yoke of those numerous years of training, and the more sensitive his soul is, the more the impressions received in his youth will be entrenched in his imagination, and these will be the remembrance of the interpretations of the great virtuosos he heard. Enormous efforts are required to bring our fingers to produce other dynamics as well as to prompt our souls and hearts to perceive and feel differently. In the process of interpretation, we are always faced with two main issues, creation or routine. A new work has to be created by various artists as well as by the author. One of these interpretations will survive. The best? Not always. Often it will be the one which was propagated by the most fashionable interpreter and transmitted to his pupils and to the pupils of his pupils. This is what has happened with Chopin. The Chopin of the young generation of pianists has no longer any freshness of appearance because they see him through the playing of all his more or less famous interpreters. To judge impartially the interpretation of a performer, the first requisite would be to avoid hearing the work played by anyone else before. But who among us knows a work in its virginity, having only read the score without any commentaries? Is there a well-known phrase to which is not attached the accelerando of a Toscanini or the rubato of another conductor? It is only after living intimately with the music of a composer that we become able to feel without hesitation that certain accessories brought to it by the interpreter are congenial or not to the work. Today's musicians, especially interpreters, make their way in the domain of ancient music as they would on unfamiliar ground. They do not dare to venture a metaphor or an image, no matter how appropriate it seems to them. Their vague knowledge of the color and characteristics of the epoch stops them at every step and makes them timorous. Their interpretation is reduced to a congealed formula, usually called absolute music. Interpreters are not sufficiently aware of the prime necessity of knowing the structure of a piece thoroughly in order to recreate it. Musical forms do not exist as intrinsic manifestations. Some among them which were innovations in their epoch can no longer be isolated in the purely theoretical domain, but they are nonetheless intimately tied to the genius who in creating them 
obeyed the demands of his own nature. Nobody invents anything. Influences appear. They are amplified. A new touch is added, and we witness a renovation similar to a rebirth. Great men are not innovators occupied solely with technical discoveries. If they do bring any modifications to an established form, it is not from a desire to create novelties, but it is from an exigency of their genius. And what is a discovery if not a truth that has always existed and that someone has just seen with surprise and wonder? When a surgeon operates, the life or death of the patient is at stake. When we play, it is the same thing. The life or death of a piece lies between our two hands, powerless most of the time. Is a writer who interprets life or a painter who interprets nature more creative than he who interprets Bach, Couperin, or Chopin? At first this question may suggest an ambitious presumption. Yet is not that a creative process, the one which consists of grafting upon something already formed, of adhering to a fixed complex, and of creating upon a creation? The power and the magic of music lie in its intangibility and its limitlessness. It suggests images, but leaves us free to choose them and to accommodate them to our pleasure. I always suffer from an astonishment that grows into shock when I look at illustrations in a book, and yet I know some beautiful ones, but they are contrary to the image my fantasy has envisaged and I think with melancholy of what I offer to my listeners. Tempe, choice of registration, phrasing, etc., are as subjective as these illustrations are. Of course it would be easy for me to justify the ones I use by making comparisons. Isn't an interpreter a witness to the spectacle of creation? And, after all, is it not expected of a witness who has the inestimable privilege of attending a birth to be discreet and not to swoon more ecstatically than the father or suffer more than the mother? Gounod once said to his wife during the funeral of a friend, Be careful, do not cry louder than the widow. Nothing is more interesting than to probe the quality of a musician's love for the work he is interpreting. Interesting, but also disquieting. Is it necessary to know this musician personally and to question him to make a diagnosis? Doesn't he reveal himself in his playing? As he goes along, doesn't he deposit the proof of his love, giving us a clue to his reasons for choosing this particular work? This proof may turn out to be a frightening confession. I think of the poor public, subjected to the most contradictory interpretations. They understand none of them, but they always applaud. I sift out the interpretation of other performers. I would do better to listen to mine. Criticism, like charity, begins at home. On what do I base my interpretations? On some historical facts, on study grounded on analytical comparisons, and on experience. By living intimately with the works of a composer, I endeavor to penetrate his spirit, 
to move with an increasing ease in the world of his thoughts and to know them by heart so that I may recognize immediately when Mozart is in good humor or when Handel wants to express triumphant joy. I want to know when Bach is raging and throwing a handful of sixteenths at the face of some imaginary adversary or a flaming spray of arpeggios as he does in the chromatic fantasy. The goal is to attain such an identification with the composer that no more effort has to be made to understand the slightest of his intentions or to follow the subtlest fluctuations of his mind. To know what Mozart means when he writes in D major, or what Bach wishes to express when he uses the key of E flat major, we have numerous points of comparisons at our disposal among various works on which we can lean and rely and from which we can draw conclusions. A text previously unintelligible becomes clear. Then I am able to realize and reconstruct it. A single look at the graphic appearance of a composition often tells me the tempo and character of that piece. But it is only when scrupulous ears, the phrase is St. Augustine's, are in immediate contact with the center of understanding that the spark can flash. Has anyone a right to remain ignorant when he loves something? Does not love give the incentive to search, to penetrate the secret, and to break the seal of mystery? Because there is mystery for those who do not understand, only they do not know it. The seeking lover, on the contrary, realizes after each one of his discoveries how little he knows. To be an interpreter one must have visions. The richer the imagination of a musician, the more possibilities of sonority he hears. But it is not enough. He must search for means to incorporate and project these visions. In my playing, I dramatize in the Greek meaning of the term drama, i.e. action. There is a part that escapes reasoning in my interpretation. Its fulgurant and picturesque side is precisely that about which the Germans, instinctively, had misgivings. They accepted it for Scarlatti or Couperin, but rejected it for Bach. This superman, according to them, had no contact with humanity. Evidently, one must be well-bred to allow oneself a certain intimacy with great men without falling into an irreverent familiarity. When I play, there is always a frame, although I do not care any longer about the rules of interpretation. What I do is comparable to the style of a dancer like the great Argentina, or to the improvisations of a good jazz band. What I seek is a seemingly improvisatory manner which does not let the listener foresee what is coming. I wish to keep surprises in reserve for him. Moreover, I want to experience them myself, and not to harbor the knowing look of those who are so sure of where they are going. My approach satisfies me, especially in a fugue, in spite of its strictly established form. How many days and nights of relentless work, of hardship, and of indescribable effort are needed to succeed in playing with careless ease. But I shall obtain it. I pray my God Bach to help me.
I have arrived at a point, this was written April 13th, 1952, at which I would tear to pieces anyone who would dare say to me, modify this or that in your interpretation. Nothing is left of my former moderation. If Rameau himself would rise from his grave to demand of me some changes in my interpretation of his Dauphine, I would answer, You gave birth to it. It is beautiful. But now leave me alone with it. You have nothing more to say. Go away. I am like a tigress defending her cubs. I know that while playing La Dauphine, I take incredible liberties. Rameau improvised this piece during wedding festivities. Why couldn't I do it, too? The idea of objectivity is utopian. Can the music of any composer maintain its integrity after passing through the living complex, sanguine or phlegmatic, of this or that interpreter? Can an interpreter restrict himself to remaining in the shadow of the author? What a commonplace! What a joke! Am I right in elevating to such heights the pieces I play? I do not know. But one thing is sure, I shall not relent. Probably I shall be criticized for playing Bach's fugues in a too picturesque manner. Should not this reproach be addressed to Bach himself? In each one of his fugues, Bach depicts a scene or a mood that is obvious to me. I only execute his will. Reading my commentary for the last movement of Bach's concerto in D major, one of our greatest conductors once said to me, What nerve you must possess to state that this piece is a waltz! Did the poor little girl who exclaimed, But the emperor is naked, in Anderson's Emperor's New Clothes, have nerve? Do I have to convince those who obstinately consider Bach's music as absolute and abstract speculations that even his most learned fugues can be poems? My efforts would be as futile as useless. Bach himself does it and those who do not understand or feel it should refrain from listening to his music. It makes me think of young theological students who do not dare to look at an attractive woman for fear of falling under her charm. But it is most natural for these young men to be inclined toward sensual pleasures, although that is forbidden by their religion. As for the musicians described above, they experience the sensuousness of music only if the composer said so in the title. What poor natures! I would not trust them. Ancient music! How harmful it was to name it so! Elevated upon a pompous pedestal and removed from mankind, ancient music has lost its own life. Why? Could it be that it never was alive? Could we imagine Bach, whose passionate and constructive character exalts love and life in all its forms? Could we imagine his composing only to show off his great knowledge of counterpoint? Did Bach, Cupera, and Scarlatti play the harpsichord to preserve historical truth? or because on this instrument they were able to express passion, joy, or despair? No, ancient music is not ancient. 
It is young. It throbs with an exuberant and warm life, which in turn gives us new life. It is thus that we must hear it. Listen to this ancient music, young and vibrant. Listen to it, and let yourself be carried away.